We have our group back from Challenge Youth Conference this evening. We're glad that they are with us. We appreciate the Grazianos and Mabrys going as chaperones this year. Uh, they are all, the whole group is just bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. As they were getting off the bus, I told them I'd keep the sermon to under an hour and a half, so not, not to worry. But we, we truly are grateful they're back safely with us. And I already heard a lot of good things that happened this week, and I know we'll hear a lot more good things from this uh, event that happens each, each year. And I'm so glad our group gets to go annually to that good thing. How would you feel about me, not as a preacher, but just as a Christian in general, if if I were to come up here tonight and, and say something like this, it's fine if you sin just a little. Most of you would say, you know, there's other preachers in the room. And you'd be right to say something like that. And that's true that we need to say some things like that all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. It's also honest for us to admit from various passages of the Bible, but also from our own lives. Each one of us struggles with sin in various capacities of our lives. We, we understand that. We also want to do better. and We seek God's forgiveness. We talk about those sorts of things. But, but if we were to say it's okay to, to, to sin just a little, that, that's fine. You probably wouldn't let me finish the sermon. But I'm afraid by some things I've heard and seen from Christians, and yes, even some who are members here, that that's our unspoken attitude about our subject tonight. You may have guessed what it is from the bulletin. I've actually had a couple people guess, and both of them guessed wrong, so yes, it worked. But I don't want to give explicitly what it is for a moment or two. I want to say before I mention specifically the subject we're going to think about tonight, I know it's a controversial one. I know there are people who will disagree with me. But I also need to say right from the outset, my role as a preacher of the gospel is not to be popular with people. My role is not to avoid controversial subjects. My role is to study the Scripture as best I can and preach the Word. To be instant in season and out of season. To reprove, rebuke, and exhort. But never to forget with all long-suffering and doctrine. But let me say this. While I've heard and seen some who have given into what we're going to talk about tonight, I'm not preaching this sermon tonight based on this person or that person, I don't, I don't do that. If there is a connection, it's more from the totality of things I've seen and heard among Christians in various places, yes, including here, totality of conversations, remarks, and posts, but if someone has said or done something the last week or so, that's not where this sermon came from. I can tell you that because this sermon was finished in early December. It was scheduled to be preached in early February and got pushed back a couple times for different things. But we're calling tonight's sermon, as you saw in the bulletin, the Red Eyes Sermon. Some of you may have thought we're going to talk about a dragon in Revelation or something, or something like that. That's not it. That terminology comes from the book of Proverbs, where by inspiration, the wisest man outside of Jesus who ever lived, in Proverbs chapter 23, beginning of verse 29, wrote these words Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go and try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. 
You'll be, be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I must have another drink? If that word picture drawn by Solomon in those verses were not so real to life, it would be hysterical. But for so many people, those verses are not funny at all. Alcohol ruins lives, and alcohol destroys souls. And just as tragically, there are Christians who defend it. And while there are dozens of questions that we could think about tonight, there's tons of angles to consider this subject from. Instead of trying to discover everything in Scripture said about the subject, instead of trying to cover 15 or 20 different passages, I want us to drill down tonight on just three broad principles that I hope are vital to our understanding of what sometimes is referred to as social or recreational drinking. And the first, I'll put it out there to begin with, is simply this. It is sin. It amazes me how many Christians will push back at the notion that drinking beverage alcohol is a sin. They'll go to passages like Galatians chapter 5, verses 19-21 through 21, that works the flesh, and they'll say, see, that list says drunkenness. It doesn't say drinking. And using that, I guess we'll call it logic, they'll say it's okay to drink a little because you're not in fall, some fall-down stupor of drunkenness. But I want us to think about that concept for a few moments. First of all, think about the concept of the works of the flesh themselves. In, in that list in Galatians 5.19, the word drunkenness, as most translations have it, comes from a Greek word that basically at its root just means intoxicant. That's really all it means. And used here in this list, it means the result of intaking an intoxicant, which is why it's stated the way it is. But there are still some who say, well, well, what that really condemns is getting past some line, either some legal line or some personal line, where I just, to use a modern term, I just can't hold my booze anymore. If you think that way, Keep a finger or a ribbon in that works of the flesh, we're going back to it, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Because 1 Peter chapter 4 is one of the most overlooked passages in this discussion, I think, in, in the entire Bible. As you're turning there, I'll let you know that in verse 3 of that verse, Peter describes the way that Gentiles, and he uses the word Gentiles in this text to, to describe those who are away from God or act as if they're away from God. He describes the way they live and act. And in 1 Peter 4, 3, he says this, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles, those who don't act like God, what the Gentiles want to do. And then he gives a list. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. There are a couple of items on that list that are of tremendous value for our understanding. We're going to take them out of order as far as they're found on the list. The first one to think about is that phrase, drinking parties. The King James Version has the word banquetings. The word here is not saying never have a banquet. The word here is not saying never a party. And it's also not saying that it's only a party or a banquet where people get plastered. That's not the meaning of the word. The word simply means a place, an event, where drinking is promoted. R.C. Trench, who's a Greek scholar multiplied times more than I am, specifically wrote about the word that it does not necessarily imply drinking to excess. He said this, instead... The word is a place where drinking occurs. A drinking party is why that's why it's translated that way in some translations. But the other interesting word on that list is the word drunkenness, or the King James Version as excess of wine. 
What you may find interesting is this is not the same word that's found in Galatians chapter 5. In fact, the word here in 1 Peter 4 is more instructive. That's why I say this is a very overlooked passage. Because that same Greek scholar writes about the word here in 1 Peter 4 that it, quote, marks a step in the advance of, end quote, drunkenness. In other words, it's any step in the process of getting drunk. May I ask, when does that start? When I begin drinking. That's where it starts. There is simply no leg to stand on that says, well, as long as I'm not plastered, or as long as I'm not over some legal limit, then I'm okay. But the other thing to consider is found in that works of the flesh list in Galatians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 19, listen to the whole list. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Some translations add, which are these? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. Now that's a terrible list, but I left something off, didn't I? How does the list actually end? And things like these. Just take something else on that list from it. Just to step out of the controversial for a second. Take something else on that list. Take divisions. I think all of us would say, it is a terrible thing to be someone who would divide the people of God, especially over opinions or personality quirks or hurt feelings or those sorts of things. We, we would all say that, that's a wrong thing to do. But then is there any of us who would say, well, so long as you don't actually divide people, go ahead and talk bad about your fellow Christians because you haven't actually divided anybody, so therefore it's okay. Of course we wouldn't say that. Because we know that what leads to division is awful and anything like division based on personalities and those sorts of things, we know that it's awful. And so we want to, to cut it off before it ever gets going. But for some reason, when it comes to alcohol, we want to see how far down the road we can go and still be okay. So long as I'm not legally drunk, I must be okay. So long as I don't drink and drive, I must be okay. So long as I don't physically harm my wife or my children, I must be okay. About what other sin do we actually talk that way? This isn't on the screens, but it brings to mind Paul's words. This is actually mentioned when he's not in Bible class. Where in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 22, he famously wrote, Abstain from the very appearance of evil. And that's one reason why I wanted to begin with that reading from Proverbs chapter 23, by wisdom that Solomon even said, don't look at it even while it's in the cup. It's the same reflection of that command from the New Testament to abstain from even the very appearance of it. It is sin. But if that's not enough, we also observe that the reputation of the church is to remain pure. Now, I think something that's nearly universal, or it should be universal, is that you just don't mess with somebody's spouse. Right? You listen to a husband that's been married for quite a while and has a good marriage, or really even a decent marriage, and you'll probably hear them say something like this, you, know, you can make fun of me all you want. You can take all the shots at me you want, but don't you dare mess with my wife. And we know what they mean. And we know that they mean it, well, they better mean it, when they say it, especially if they're married to somebody from the South. They better mean it when they say that. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 is a passage so often used by husbands and wives, and rightfully so, but Paul causes us to think very deeply about this concept in this beautiful and memorable passage. 
We won't read all the verses, but just to keep you remind you of what's going on, in Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 24, he addresses wives, tells them to be submissive to their husbands. But starting in verse 25, he addresses the husbands and he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And as he continues reading, again, we won't read the entire context, he talks about the, the depth of love that a husband should have, but then he returns to, to sort of sum up the concept down in verse 32, when he says, This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, is that passage talking about husbands and wives? Yes. But what's Paul saying? The underlying principle is it's to reflect the relationship between Jesus and, if I may use the terminology, His bride, the church. So what does that have to do with this subject tonight? When I sin, when you sin, in a sense it brings shame on the church. Or to use Paul's words for this passage, it brings something like, a spot or a blemish upon the church. And I don't want to do that to the bride of Jesus. And I for sure don't want to do that and then flaunt it in front of other people. When I flaunt sin in front of the world, does that not cause a blemish to the reputation of the very bride of Jesus Christ? Does that not cause a spot, if you will, on the name of the bride of Jesus. And you just don't mess with someone's bride. The reputation of the church should be completely whole and completely pure if I, we, have anything to do with it. We should do all we can to keep it that way. And so, when we see Christians with their beer at the concert or the ball game and posting about it on social media or see Christians with their, their wine at the restaurant or the cruise, you hear Christians talk about having a beer with their buddies because it was the ballpark. Let me ask you, which of those scenarios reflected the glory and splendor of the church? Which of those types of things makes it clear that I love the Lord and I don't want to do anything to harm His bride? We are stewards of the reputation of Jesus' bride. And some of us drown that reputation in a sea of alcohol. And number three, still in Ephesians chapter 5, there's probably a better way to word this. This is the best way I can think of. You can't be filled if you're full. This is also found in Ephesians chapter 5. It's in a passage that we, we nearly always use to talk about why we don't use mechanical instruments and music and worship, and that's certainly an application of the passage. But there's so much more. Look up in Ephesians 5, beginning of verse 15, and we'll read through verse 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and by everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence, for Christ. Now I read from the English Standard Version, which uses the word debauchery in that text, which is a, a word that most of us don't use anywhere except in church. The, the King James Version uses the word excess. You may find it of interest that the word that's translated debauchery or excess in that passage 
is a form of the very same word from a more famous passage. You don't have to turn there. But it's found in Luke chapter 15 where we're told the son that went away spent his money on prodigal living, riotous living, profligate living. That's this word, or a form of this word. Maybe that helps to get in mind what what Paul was writing here in Ephesians chapter 5. The word literally means an unsaved manner of life. But I want to focus on the contrast found here. Because sometimes, and again, I'm guilty of it too, sometimes we look at this passage or this text, we jump straight to verse 19 and talk about singing, and that's important. That's essential to our understanding of worship. But that singing even flows from a life that's filled with the Spirit. That's really the, the command in this passage. Be filled with the Spirit. But even that isn't going back far enough. Because Paul has given a contrast. We're not to be drunk, literally the word is intoxicated, but rather we're to be filled with the Spirit. And the words you see on the screens that he chose for filled was often used of a net that's literally crammed full of fish. That's the word he used. He is saying you can't put anything else in this life because it is so filled up with the Spirit of God. Let me ask, don't you want your life to be totally filled with the Spirit of God? Now, I'm not asking how that happens, because frankly, we don't have that much time to try to solve that, that issue of, of how the Spirit fills us or how the Spirit dwells within us. That's a discussion for a different time. But no matter how I might think this actually happens, that the Spirit fills a Christian's life, we should want the Spirit of, life, of God to completely and totally fill us. And if we allow that to happen, then there's not room for the things of this world to fill us any further. We cannot be putting things in our lives that cause us then to, to have a mind and, and a will that is weakened to the attacks of our enemies. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, the devil is compared to a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's called our enemy, our adversary there. But you remember how that verse began, those twin commands? Be sober, be vigilant. I, I like to put it this way, keep your head on straight and your eyes open. That's not the actual Greek, but that kind of gets the idea. If I'm putting things into my mind, my body, that keep me from being fully engaged in my head being on straight, and my eyes open against the attacks of the devil, that I'm not filling my mind with the fullness of the Spirit of God. I can't be filled with anything else if I'm already full. Now, are there other things from Scripture to consider on this subject? Of course. As I, as I said, there's just lots of passages. You're probably thinking of others. You may have other questions or things. All, and there are always people who disagree on this subject. But I want to end with a couple of things just by way of practicality. First, I want to end by saying, let's, well, let's end how we began. What if I were to tell you it's okay to sin a little bit? I mean, how would you feel about me as a Christian? As a preacher? Noah's going to be gone this week. He's got a honeymoon or something. I, I, I'm supposed to lead teens in the Word Thursday night. Parents, how would you feel about me having your teenagers over Thursday night? If I was going to tell them, it's okay to sin a little bit. It'd be the smallest attended teens in the world we've ever had, I guarantee you. And rightfully so. What would you think about my reputation as a Christian? If I said, it's okay to sin some. You wouldn't want me to say anything like that. You'd be right in that. So when it comes to this subject, let's have the same standard. 
Let's not do anything that goes in that direction. Let's not do anything that brings harm upon the reputation of the church. And let's so fill our lives with the Spirit of God that there's not even a thought of putting anything in that would intoxicate our mind, our body, that's supposed to be used to the glory of God. But I want to say something else for our close. I know that there are some here at Central who do or have struggled with this. And most who have will tell you they still do, at least to some degree. That's just the way this works. We have members here who have a history of alcohol use, even alcohol abuse. And hearing a lesson about this can be difficult because maybe it brings back painful memories. Maybe it brings back a difficult struggle. Maybe it brings back a time when there was, to use the the term, a relapse into this temptation. If that's you, please know, please know that myself, Noah, our elders, plenty of other faithful Christians are here to do anything to help you, to pray with you, to be accountability partners, to give you information. Even I'll drive you to counseling, whatever it takes to help you continue to fight and to seek to avoid this temptation, this sin. And also know this, God sees your heart and God sees your effort and He's with you. His Word will guide you. And He is wanting you as His child to be free and to be pure. And you can't overcome it. But on the flip side of that coin, there are some who just don't think this is any big deal. There are some who think, I've wasted the last 25 or 30 minutes of our time. If that's you, let me challenge you to do a few things. One, talk to those members for whom this is a struggle. And then tell them it's no big deal. Talk to those Christians who've dealt with a drunk spouse and been hit by them and say, it's not that big of a deal. Talk to that Christian brother who's gone on a business trip and embarrassed himself because he had one more than he thought he could handle. And you try to tell them it's not that big of a deal. Talk to that child who wishes that daddy wouldn't drink a beer before he comes to the ball game so that daddy wouldn't make a fool of himself and try to tell that child it's not that big of a deal. But way more than that, you talk to God and you try to tell Him that His Holy Spirit's not enough for you. And so you've got to fill your life with something else. It is a big deal. It's an eternal deal. Because I cannot let anything of this world get in the way of seeing Jesus forever. Who has red eyes? I pray it's never any one of us. But instead I pray that all of us will have souls that are pure white because of the blood of the Lamb. If you need to come to Him tonight, will you do so? Always stand and sing to encourage you.